recovery isn't easy and it's not for the weak. These are Donovan Chapman's words about coming back from combat and becoming whole and getting healthy again. Man, I am so excited to have a guest in my studio who knows a thing or two about combat. We're going to tell some war stories today, but more than that, has walked through the road to recovery and gives some very practical advice on how you can handle your greatest challenges and be unbeatable. Here's Donovan Chapman. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life. You're listening to Unbeatable with Jeff Struker. I'll tell you right now, man, it is really, really good to see you. Thanks for making the trip down from Nashville. Nashville. And by the way, thanks for bringing your guitar in the studio. Why don't you hit a quick chord right now so that everybody who's listening can hear that there's a guitar in the studio? Okay, everybody, there's more of that to come. Because we're gonna have, um, D-D. we're gonna have. That's right, man. We're gonna have Donovan do a little bit more music live uh, during this episode. But man, I want to just say thanks. Um, I try to do this every time we have a veteran on the show. Thank you for serving the country. We're gonna talk a little bit about the service that you did in the U.S. Air Force, and about what you're doing now in Nashville, going out there and making a difference in people's lives with a guitar in your hands. Thank um, you. So you come from a pretty distinctive military family, man. I'm looking back over your, your yeah. family history, and it goes all the way back to World War I. Can you tell everybody a little bit about your family's military tradition? Absolutely. Um, raised very strong military values, uh, core Christian, God, country, uh, patriot. You know, we farmers, we're just salt of the earth, you know, Louisiana. My great-great-grandfather, or excuse me, my great-grandfather lost his leg in World War I. And he came back and broke, uh, it was like close to a thousand acres with just a mule and a peg. And peg one leg. leg. Yeah. Wow. Can you imagine popping that sucker out of the mud as you're sitting here? Yeah. And then, yeah, and he had a you know bunch of children, like I think it was 13 to 14 sons and daughters. All right. And they were out there cutting logs, digging up stumps, and they would roll them logs out and they would process the wood. And um, during World War II, he lost three of his sons. I believe three of my uncles were killed. Um from downrange in World War II. Yeah, in combat. And then my grandfather, who I call my papaw, who married my great-granddaddy's daughter, uh, he was in World War II. And then my dad was injured, shot, he had a bullet hit his hand in combat in Vietnam. And he was 1st Aviation, 1st 7th Air Cavalry. Wow. And um, and I'm the oldest, and I served in Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kuwait. And my little brother is actually a Louisiana State Trooper, and he is a, sar- a battalion sergeant major still with the Guard. All right. And he deployed for a whole year to Kandahar, right behind me. So yeah. we were like three, three oh, weeks really? apart. I yeah. came back, and then he went over for a year. So all the males, we all served. Yeah. Man, your family really goes back military history in the United States. Your family goes back for more than a hundred years. It's mm-hmm. impressive. Yeah. It's it's amazing what your family's done for our country. Um, you you just mentioned it. You grew up around farming, literally in Farmerville, Louisiana. So, yeah. what was life like growing up in Farmerville, Louisiana? Well, when when uh, when when my buddies were out water skiing and enjoying themselves and fishing and bass fishing. I was, and it was like June or May or June, I was out in the pea patch picking purple hole peas. Of course. And then we get into the house, we put out newspaper in the living room, push all the furniture out of the way and dump out these big buckets of purple hole peas in the middle of the living room. And it's like, we had two movies. It was like Grease and Goonies. And we had to put those two on and watch them over and over and over again. And we could not go play. And we'd sit there with them big vats and big pans. And we'd sit there and shell peas to our... So your were fingers are bleeding, right? Yeah, and we just we were not allowed to go play until that you know five or six bushels of peas in the middle of the living room on newspaper was shelled, and then we got done with that. We can go play, but guess what? Next morning, five o'clock comes That's around. Right. Get get up. Here's breakfast. Go back out to that same purple hole pea patch, and you thought you picked them all. Guess what? <laughs> They're all purple they all again. Came back. Yeah, yeah, it was you know, but they that installed in me uh, something that it sticks with me today. How to how to how to raise food for right. myself. Yeah, and I, you know, like when I was in college, everybody was moaning and raising cane about this and this and that. And well, you know, whether fast food's good and this. And I just raised my hand, and my teacher goes, "What do you got, Don?" And I said, "How many of y'all ever grown a tomato plant before? I mean, how many of y'all in this humanities class right. has ever grown a tomato plant?" And it very few, if one or two or three actually raised their hand. 
I was like, that is a relationship with the land that gives you the yeah. fundamentals to understanding life. Even though you're just like, oh, that's so stupid. You're just picking a pea. Well, you try to grow it and feed yourself. Uh-huh. And if you and we can rely on the land to some point to offset our cost in an inflation society to be able to provide for ourselves. And that's where hunting, fishing, farming comes from with us, you know, as for me as a Louisiana Southern boy. Yeah, any kid who grew up in the backwoods, backwoods anywhere in, in, in the world knows what this is like, but mm-hmm. especially for the kids that grew up on a farm. They know all about 5 o'clock mm-hmm. in the morning, doing a couple of hours worth of work before I get to school, and when I come home from mm-hmm. school, I got a couple more hours worth of work on the land waiting for me before I can get to my schoolwork, yeah. before I can actually spend a few minutes doing some personal stuff. Mm-hmm. And no question, man, that hard living creates a work ethic yeah. that makes military life a little bit more bearable. Would you agree? Yeah. And, and it, <laughs> little, I got a little story for you. So something about maybe like holding your ground, being raised in the South and being stern, holding your ground. Uh-huh. So we, were, we would put our potatoes in a, in a barn on the other side of our, my grandfather's pasture. And up on the top deck, we would lay them out for the year. You could just always go and get them, the ones that wouldn't rot, right? Um, and so my grandfather had this red stallion. He was wild as hell. And my dad had me, and I was probably seven or eight years old, and he was carrying a five-gallon bucket going to get potatoes. And that horse did a big circle and come running straight at us. And my dad, there was no stick. There was no shovel. We didn't have anything. And I remember my dad pushed me to the side, and he reared back and put that bucket down and haymakered him and punched that horse <laughs> right dead in between the eyes where that flat part is, uh-huh. and that horse, and he's like, oh, I mean, he, I mean, dropped me, just nailed him. And I'm like, God, daddy's hitting horses. Uh-huh. I, mean, I mean, that just showed my dad. I was like, dad's a badass. Yeah. <laughs> he stopped a full-blown stallion in his tracks and reared him up. And that stallion took off the other way. Yeah. But I'll never forget that memory of that. <laughs> For everybody who's listening to this right now and didn't get a chance to see this, you know, this thing played out on YouTube, you got to imagine, you got a picture in your mind, the, um, you know, Donovan doing the impression of his dad punching a horse at, you know, right in the, the forehead yeah, that, that was going wild, buck wild, right? Yeah. Run, about to run us over. Yeah. It was about to knock us down. Yeah. No wonder when you turn 17 that the military is both because of your distinctive military family tradition, mm-hmm. but also just growing up with a tough work, you know, in a, t- in a tough uh, world and a hard work ethic. No wonder why you'd consider the military. Mm-hmm. But I wonder why the Air Force? You have some options at 17. Yeah. Why did you decide to go talk to the uh, U.S. Air Force recruiter? You know, be honest, when I went to all the recruiters, the Marine recruiter, he was he was on me pretty tough. Like, oh, yeah, he just stayed on me, show up. I'd be coming out of my classes at high school, and he was right there. And he's like, right there waiting for you? Hey, hey buddy, Scary. how you doing? Yeah, and then the National Guard guy was like, took me to, to take a test somewhere. Then he went. we went riding around, and he went, we stopped in a parking lot. He wanted to talk to me about the ropes. And I was like, let's give this Air Force guy a shot. And I went to the office of the Air Force recruiter right on North Louisville in Monroe. And I went in, he's like, what's up, man? I'm like, how you doing? He goes, you want to join the Air Force? I'm like, well, what do you got? He goes, well, I'll tell you what, what's your scores like? He goes, well, try being an EMP, man. I mean, <laughs> if you, you kind of like doing that stuff, you're security policeman, he goes, I can get you a job as a security specialist. We got law enforcement and then we got security specialists. You can probably get to go guard nuclear warheads and do some um, airborne stuff, you know, transporting warheads, be on a mobile fire team or an airborne fire team. Sound cool to you? And I went, yeah, man. When can I get in? He goes, two days. And so, wow. And so he walked me right in on that. And I mean, I didn't even, if he would have said the word pararescue, it would have scared me yeah, to death. I would yeah. have running out the door. So you you just basically became a recruiter's dream dream kid, a kid with, with great test scores and a hard work ethic who mm. walks in the door and says, what you got for me? Yeah. And he pitches the, you know, the security police to you. And you're, mm. you're like, hey, man, sign me up. Yeah. Tell me about... Um, Leaving for the Air Force, we just talked about this right before this episode started, your first plane ride in your lifetime. Because, by the way, I did my second plane ride ever getting on an airplane after having enlisted in the Army and getting flown halfway across the country. So tell me about your first plane ride. Going into the Air Force. Going five, to the Air Force, right? Five minutes into my first time with my being in an airplane, throwing up. 
nice. my brains out. Awesome. I just my I just had never been in something being lifted like that besides being at the county fair or something or the parish fair. But I got on that plane and I was sick, man. I got so sick. It was just going from Shreveport to San Antonio. And man, I when I got down there, they were all waiting for us and they're marching us out and I'm walking with my bag and I'm like, how the hell is this going to work for me? I joined the Air Force and I can't even fly without throwing up. But yeah, and then but that was interesting, and I kind of got over that uh, when we got to Minot because I was on the uh, – we had the transport transport the Minuteman 3. Wait a second. Heads. They sent you – your first assignment was Minot, North Dakota? Minot, North Are Dakota. Are you kidding me right no, now? Sir. A kid from Louisiana finds himself on a, in a winter in North Dakota. A Hawaiian genetical, oh, Louisiana. Oh, man, that first winter must have been so rough for you. Negative 65. Yeah, I don't think people who are not familiar with that part of the United mm. States understand what those temperatures are like. Describe just briefly winter in Minot, North Dakota. It's so cold that you literally, when they say when you like use the bathroom, if you're out on a missile silo and you're guarding the silo, which may be in the middle of a farmer's field, and we're putting that warhead on top of that payload, that rocket. So it takes sometimes 12 or longer hours to, before they can get it set and get all the electronics reset on it. And you're standing out there walking around sometimes, and literally you can use the bathroom, and it will arc right back up to you. Just I mean, it will freeze in place. Uh, so you have to kind of stop, stumble backwards a little bit, you know. <laughs> and, um, and and breathing, it's just, if you've ever been in that type of cold, when you if you breathe in too hard, if you're walking too fast, too much exertion, and you breathe, it'll it'll freeze your, th- your lungs and your throat. And so you have to be really careful yeah. about breathing slowly. Um, having your mouth covered up, warm your air up before it goes in. And another thing is, is too, is hydration. Oh yeah. Hydration is a major thing because when it's that cold and dry, I mean, we don't realize that we use a gallon of fluid Uh to hydrate the air through our our nose, our nasal cannulas that just for the air to go in our lungs, it has to be moisturized, right? So we use like a gallon a day. And so you have you, when you're cold, man. You, the one, last thing you want to do yeah. is drink water. That's right. It's like coffee, 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 yeah. hot coffee, coffee. But you got to drink water, and or you'll get dehydrated oh, yeah. real quick. I ask you this because there are people listening right now that just heard you say minus sixty five. And by the way, that's Fahrenheit. So if you want to do the math, this is ninety degrees below freezing Fahrenheit. And people are saying, no way, it's not really that cold. So I needed you to describe what it feels like to be that far below freezing Mm -hmm. and be stuck outside in a farmer's field guarding a nuclear warhead. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of cops got uh, frostbite up there. You have to really time, you know, listen to your body. And when you're starting to tingle and, you know, your feet are getting where they're numb, you better get your butt indoors or get in the Peacekeeper, which was the armored vehicle, Uh and warm up. Warm warm yourself up. We're wearing some really thick clothing and, uh, you know, uh, layers and layers and layers. These huge mittens, these big muckluck boots. I mean, we look like we're Eskimos, man. Uh, but that's what you have to do. And you're trying to carry a gun, you know, your weapon. You got an M60 and you're carrying this thing with mittens on. I mean. Plus, it's the plains, which means it's wide open spaces and nothing to block the wind. Yeah. And there's always a wind hitting you in the face at minus 65 mm-hmm. degrees Fahrenheit. Straight out of the north. Yeah. I can only imagine a kid with Hawaiian genetics coming straight out of Louisiana <laughs> on his first assignment in Minot, North Dakota. Yep. Wow, the Air Force hooked you up, brother. Yeah, they did. That was something, man. And I was like, I got to get out of yeah. here. This place is stuff. Uh, no uh, wonder why you decided to go consider the PJs. <laughs> and maybe that would get me to someplace a little bit warmer. Well, I had to, to get out of Minot. You have to do a remote assignment, an overseas remote, which is a short tour. So the remotes were to Osan Air Base Korea or uh-huh. Kunsan. Kunsan is kind of the one you also in Korea, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in South Korea. So I did a remote. It was like six of my guys and I. We did a remote. We put it in. So within a year, we were out of Minot. So we went to Kunsan, where it's we, nice and warm in the sun, in the winter time. <laughs> that's a joke for anybody who doesn't know the <laughs> and, Korean Peninsula. Yeah. And that's a totally different type of wet cold, yeah. wet snow, wet cold. Kunsan is right on the Yellow Sea. So you're right against the old muddy yeah. yellow sea rolling in. I mean, it's 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 nasty down there. Um, it's not like Osan. Osan's more up in you know toward the center of uh, South Korea. But I went down there, and that's when I became a mortarman, a eighty-one Mike Mike. All and, right. And I stayed in the mortar pits, and we shot mortars all the time. So we were just, and we had, you know, we went through the mortarman school, and we were you and our F 
FOs and our FDCs, Fire Direction Control yeah. Centers, and so that we were basically the base defense for if anything happened with uh, with you know the DMZ. There was methods that they talked about how the North Koreans would skirt down in these little box planes that can't be picked up by radar uh-huh. to come around and hit Kunsan and hit it at hit Korea at one whack. And so we were the base defense measure to put up loom rounds, HE or Willie Pete. We had our bunkers set up strategically all over the base for that. So we practiced every week. It yeah. was, I really enjoyed mortars. Uh, it was a completely different concept for heavy weapons. But uh, when I got there, you get to put a follow-on base. Because, hey, man, you're doing a remote, right? You're, you're yeah. paying your dues right. here. That's right. So you're going to put in your follow-on. So, of course, I put in Hickam Air Force Base, Hawaii. Of and, course. And so did the five other guys put in the same thing. So it was about, we're like, okay, it's, we got a month left of this year assignment, this remote. And... Uh, the orders came, the order personnel came in and said, hey, we need you guys all to come in. Uh, you guys orders, four of you guys were canceled and you're going back to Minot. Oh, no. And there's one person that's possibly still going to Hickam. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And would you lower 20% the, chance, by the way. Yeah. So we all went before the personnel. I was the one that kept the orders to Hawaii being a, what a God sent. Yeah. And everybody else had to go back to Minot. Oh, no, man. I was like, how the Air Force guy can you yeah, do that to these poor right. cops, man? This is just torture. And so they go to they go from there to wet, cold, nasty yep. South Korea, the Wolf Pack, and now they're going back, back to Minot, to Minot North Dakota. Yeah, and then I show up in Hawaii, and I was able to meet my grandparents and my oh, family. Oh, that's so cool for the first time. Yeah, because I never met any of my yeah, white family. Right. Besides a few uncles that came over growing up. Yeah. So by now, people have realized that you have come from a very, dis, uh, very. Um, pronounced Hawaiian, uh, your, your family has a pr- very pronounced Hawaiian background. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the fact that you got a chance to leave Korea to go to Hawaii, but, but uh, I've given this image in my head of you in the wet cold in South Korea, hanging mortar rounds and training for the big one. When the North Koreans come across the demilitarized mm-hmm. zone and, and you know, the thing that the, the, the military has been preparing for, for 80 years over there, 70 <laughs> yeah. years over there. Yeah. Um, so when, what was going through your mind? Because by this point you've, you got a couple of years under your belt and, and you've been in the air force for a little while. What prompted you to decide I'm going to hang up the mortars and the rifle, and I'm going to trade it in for an aid bag and go consider becoming a pararescue, uh, pararescue man. What was the, the decision yeah. for you? Uh, the decision on that was, um, w- when I got to Hawaii, uh, I, um, I was exposed to, I would say, because you got so many different type of military there, right? And so when I got there, I was still a mortarman, deployable mortarman to Korea. We were the PACAF deployable force. Uh So I was also doing law enforcement duties, emergency service team response to the airport, which is connected to the Hickam Air Force Base. And so I went to air assault at the 25th ID, the Army Air Assault Course. Uh And I loved it, man. And then I was seeing, uh, I had a slot to go to RIP. There was these... uh, they were, they, you know, they gave us a slot also for RIP and I was going to go to RIP, but then we got our slots pulled because of funding from the Air Force side. Describe RIP for somebody who doesn't have a military background. Uh, RIP is pre-ranger school. Yeah. So getting you ready yeah. for a ranger, the yeah. army's ranger course. Exactly. And so a lot of the security specialists, you know, you heavy weapons guys in the Air Force, some of us do go to ranger school and get tabbed out. Yeah. Um, and I thought that I, w- I wanted to do that because I wanted to be an instructor in the security police field of security and emergency service squat, SWAT team kind of uh-huh. stuff. But then uh, I was uh, at the chow hall. and uh, Which is where all great military career decisions are made. Yep. They're very good decisions made. And I'm coming out of the chow hall. Here comes this guy, and I'm, I'm walking out. I'm getting my belt right, you know, and putting my blue beret on. And this guy walks out with a flight suit on, these crazy patches like a cat's on his uh-huh. arm saying we're all mad and, and green feet patch. And I see Halo. I'm like, I think it's, I think it's Halo. And I'm looking at him, and... He's got a toothpick in his mouth. He puts his bray on. His name was Kate, Ke- Kevin Jones. KJ, we called him. I went, are you a PJ? He's like, what the bleep else am I supposed to be? <laughs> what, can, what can I do for you, man? I was like, oh, I just wanted to meet you. He's like, you want to shake my hand? All right, here you go. Wow. <laughs> and, and so I was like, do you do any jumps here? He goes, yeah, I'm stationed at the PACF. I'm the liaison for the PACF uh, rescue efforts out here. He goes, yeah, if you want to watch a jump, I'll be jumping with the SEALs over on Ford Island tomorrow. He goes, meet me over here. I'll let you watch. And so I went over there, and he was knocking out one of his halo claws, yeah. you know, uh-huh. just to keep his pay going. And he was basically the liaison for all the special operations pararescue yeah. in the Pacific. And so I went to him and said, I want to be a PJ. He goes, all right, well, 
I'm going to tell you what to do. You're going to train for three to four months. And I went, I'm ready. He goes, no, you're not. And he goes, you won't pass the test. Uh-huh. So I trained for three to four months. He told me what to do. He came and gave me some instructions in the, in the pool as far as my underwaters, uh-huh. my, you know, my crossovers and the amount of underwaters, 50-meter underwaters repeatedly doing the amount of swimming I had to do, you know, 3,000 to 4,000 meters, and then within three minutes have shoes on yeah. and running three miles as fast as you can, sub-seven-minute miles. And then you got to back it up with the push-ups and the sit-ups and uh-huh. the pull-ups and the chin-ups and 120 flutter kicks in two minutes. And these are all boom, 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 back-to-back. And I went, Yeah. I am not in shape you're, for that. You're not ready. But I got in shape for it, and then I passed the test. And um, as a young NCO, that's when I cross-trained. And, yeah. Yep, and moved to uh, Valdosta, Georgia. So the pararescue jumpers, for people that are not familiar with it, describe what their role is in the military. Describe their job in combat. Okay, so PJs, what's our short-term name is our call sign, PJ Pararescue Jumper. Um, Pararescue was designed in Vietnam on the same time the SEALs were created. So Pararescue is your all-out force that's dedicated to combat search and rescue in any environment, whether it be mountain, ocean, uh, desert, rainforest, uh, any type of environment known to the Arctic. Uh, we train in all those methods. We also go through combat diver in the mm-hmm. Army. We also go through SOMC, Special Operations Medical Training Course at Bragg. And they change it sometimes to different medical courses, but we all go through that and get our paramedic. Um, and then we work live tissue labs, right. so we get really in-depth. And we go to jump school. Then we go to free fall school. Then we go to, you know, to CRC school. And then uh, water survival. Then we go, we end at our courses the last six months of like your two- to three-year pipeline where they test you on all these methods uh-huh. to where you're jumping in, you're diving in, you're doing uh, rams, uh, boat jumps, which it is a um, um, – Rigged alternate method of a Zodiac uh-huh. with an engine on it. We, put, we do all these type of jumps. We jump from motorcycles with, with Sea-Doo's. I mean, so any way to get to any type of special operations member or CIA or anyone, we're the ones that they will call. When the SEALs get pinned down or hurt, when the Green Berets, when the Rangers are pinned, when nobody else can get to them, that's when PJs step up and go, we're going to go. And we, we do it in a very unconventional method with small amount of teams uh-huh. and we carry whole blood we actually are using blood transfusion kits going from our body to the to the, the patient if it's a reciprocal donor or you know yep. recipient so we've devised so many different ways to save life and we're very very well prepared and trained in that aspect of being under fire having a person that the normal person would go, oh, my gosh, he's just – but we can look through. We've worked on live tissue so much, and, uh, and most of us have had our hands in blood so much that yeah. we really dial in on understanding the mechanics of the body, such as understanding at a really depth, deep level compensated versus decompensated shock uh-huh. so that you can triage a group of people properly and not just lose them all because right. you're not getting down to the science of trauma. Yeah. And that's what PJs are, the best scientists of trauma. Yeah, Um I have had a chance to be around PJs my entire career in the Army, and I've had the privilege of seeing some incredible, incredibly skilled um, warriors on the battlefield. Their courage is unmatched, um, but their abilities as their medical uh, techni- techniques, their abilities um, to, to treat uh, trauma, especially a gunshot wound or something related to that, man, I, I don't think I've seen it anywhere else, uh, better anywhere else. So... Um, you spent more than a couple of years as a PJ, right? Yes. How, how long did you ultimately spend as a PJ before you left the Air Force? I was, uh, started training and uh, the end of 97, uh, coming in 98, and got out and coming up on the beginning of 2003. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a terminal leave in there that kind of went out yeah. to the end of 2002, 2003. So you just described about a two-year training process, but in the in the middle of that two-year training process, you really do get some of the most extensive medical training the U.S. military has to offer. You're, 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 you are more qualified to do uh, trauma medicine than the average guy on an ambulance, and then even some people who are working in emergency rooms of trauma centers around the country when you're done. Yes. Well, the reason for that is, is that when you, when we go in a team of two PJs in the back of a, you know, a, a Black Hawk helicopter, or when there's a C-130 jump team with four PJs, uh-huh. we have to carry weapons. We've got SATCOM. We've got limited amount of weight we can carry. Uh, and in, in, even in the helicopters, uh, it's two PJs, right? Right. Two gunners, two pilots. Um, 
we got no doctor there. We, we go into a scenario, such as a scenario we went in. I was on a mission. Um, we went in very, very difficult night, uh, middle of a dust storm, and we were alerted that to uh, task force guys, which they were CIA guys that we had been working with a week prior to that, the task force, were, were hit by some heavy fire RPGs, and these guys were shot up. There was a Green Beret team, a Cobra team, that was able to get to there, and I had broken calm with them on the way out from uh-huh. Kandahar. And we're going through a dust storm, and this is a really bad night. We almost crashed a couple times ourselves. And the guy that I got to, he was missing both of his legs. He was missing one of his arms. He only had one arm. Um, and I ran up to the to the uh, Green Beret, the medic, the 18 Delta, and he told me what he did, gave him five milligrams of morphine just to calm him. Um, I was like, okay, what's going on with the lungs? So he had a hemonymothorax, the right lung was deflated, um, and he had um, abdominal arterial bleed, a football sticking out of his stomach, and he had abdominal viscerations. Um, and so, like I said, both legs gone, right arm's gone, bullet through the lungs, abdominal arterial bleed, abdominal viscerations, and a gunshot through his butt that came out the front of the thigh. And it actually, the femoral artery was like a higher wire. Yeah. That it, the, tent, the strength of that artery stayed, and it was like a half an orange, the exit wound there. And they'd actually took their DCU sleeves and stuffed it in there and duct taped over yeah. it. So I threw this guy up, and we hauled back to the helicopter and got in there, and I infused two pints of blood into him. And it was, it was a hard night because, I mean, I was praying. My fellow pararescuemen in the back, we were doing everything we can to save this guy. We had another one tucked in the helicopter in the back. He was dealing with some brain stuff going on. We were monitoring him at the same time. And we got to a forward site, barely got there without running out of fuel uh-huh. and crashing called Organy. And it's a little safe been, site. I've been there. Yeah. Did a few months of my life there. Yep. So I remember Organy. And so you probably heard about this then. If, when we, we were the ones that crashed our backup helicopter into Constantino wire. You ever heard about that Blackhawk? Mm-hmm. So we came in and we kept rotors turning. We got some fuel. And I remember calling for some air support on the way out because I knew we were coming in hot. Because we didn't have much calm from Kandahar. But as I got closer, I was able to get in touch with the Cobra team. And I realized we're, we're getting some, you know, some hot fire down yeah. there. So they sent two Apaches out behind us. Well, as I'm working on this guy in Organy, we come rolling him in, kind of like a mash site, right? Remember? And so the doctor was waiting in there. Hit, I think he was a civilian, hired doctor, one of our guys. And I told him what I had, gave him all the stats, told him I had a 90 <clears throat> systolic, and I'm barely holding them together. I got two pints of O negative in board, which is just packed red blood cells. Yeah. You know, That's getting oxygen, but I'm not getting plasma. I'm not getting platelets. Uh-huh. And so it's a limited, efficient ability, uh, but not the greatest. Um, he said, all right, why didn't you tube him? I was like, that abdominal arterial bleed, man. And that he, he goes, well, let me take care of this. So he unzipped him, and he went for the abdominal arterial bleed. And within 20, 30 minutes, he had that taken care of. He goes, okay, now tube him. So I had my chest tube in my yeah. pocket, so I was getting ready to tube him. And he goes, why didn't you tube him? I said, I didn't feel right about it as I wanted to. My protocol was to. He goes, well, you saved his life because he goes – Thank for your PJ because he goes, the negative pressure from the tension hemorrhagic was actually clotting off the abdominal arterial bleed. So the negative pressure from a deflated lung with blood and uh-huh. everything between the visceral and pleural lining of the lungs was clotting off that abdominal arterial bleed. And I went, wow. And so he goes, good job. And then Hanks, Tim Hanks, comes running in. Chappie, we got to go. Another mission. I'm like, oh, gosh. And this is like 3 in the morning. Yeah. I'm like, this ain't good. Yeah. And so – I said, I got to go, leaving with you. We ran back out, and the Apaches that were coming out behind us, they both got shot down, flying our route. Uh-huh. Probably we woke everything up. Right. We woke the valleys up. And so we took off. I told the back helicopter, we were Gecko 1-1, Gecko 1-2, or two other PJ buddies of mine. I said, y'all are fresh. You guys are fresh uh-huh. on everything. You got fresh blood. You're going to take lead. And so when we went to take off and we turned over the perimeter, kind of like where the outhouse was, if you remember what that is out there. And we turned and we got some good distance in the sky and, and Gecko 1-2 come up and caught the Constantina wire. Yeah. And then the pilot just fogged the juice to it and it started zipping up that Constantina wire like a zipper uh-huh. closing around the compound until it broke the boom off at about 100 feet in the air. And the helicopter came down and it crashed into the Constantina wire and then the rotors snapped and we had... We had crap from that helicopter flying across us. Yeah. My pilot's freaking out, screaming on calm, having a helmet fire. We're trying to calm him down before we auto-rotate right into that crash. And then we were, we, 
nobody was hurt, just uh, scrapes and bruises and maybe some minor bone injuries, yeah. but we were stuck at Oregon E for a good while. We yeah. just augmented. I think it was first group there at the time, and we just augmented uh-huh. them and just backed them, those guys up because we couldn't fly anything but two ship operations at the time. Right. We were down to one ship. Yeah. And it was so hot in the area that they couldn't even get us a second ship for a couple weeks. Yeah. So I just said, all right, guys, I shot my SATCOM, talked to the commander. I'm in the NCYC. Boys, we're going to back up the SF group here. Yeah. And that's how we roll. Yeah. Donovan, you just gave the ultimate description of the capabilities of the PJs, the Air Force PJs. You've got a guy who has been so wounded in combat that he's missing both legs and arm. He's got gun, multiple gunshot wounds, a deflated lung, and um, a interior or or, or um, bleeding. You know, a, an interior bleeding, and you were able to keep this guy alive basically in the middle of nowhere with just what you have on your back until we could, until you could get him to a surgeon, which is unprecedented mm-hmm. kind of capabilities. Um, 20 years ago, that was a death sentence, mm-hmm. but with the, with the skills of the PJs today and the technology that's out there, it's amazing that a guy like that would survive. It is. I, I really, I mean, not trying to say I was wishing death upon him. I just didn't think he was going to make yeah. it, man. When sure. He, when he was, you know, going, weaving in and out of 80 to 90 systolic yeah. and I could barely get a readable blood pressure on him, um, it was pretty rough. And seeing how mangled the body was and just that, that that level. But at the end of my tour, my commander told me that he made it. And I was That's I was in tears. Incredible, I was like, man. Oh my it really gosh, is man. incredible. Yeah. yeah. That was that was uh, an amazing thing. All right, so I can't wait to do this. Um, I told you about this little segment that I do in this podcast. I call it my high five. This is my way of like reaching across the table and doing a virtual high five with you. Um, But I was thinking, uh, getting ready for this episode about some of the most outrageous medical advice. You know, I've been around guys that have extensive trauma training my whole military career. Without a doubt, the most talented Uh, medical professionals in the military that I've ever been around are the PJs. And I used to tell my wife, if I ever get shot in combat, I hope that there's a PJ next to me. That's the first person that I would want plugging a hole. But I've heard some pretty stupid advice. So here's my high five segment for today. I want to talk about the ridiculous advice, medical advice that you sometimes hear in the military. Sometimes it's tongue in cheek. Sometimes people are actually... Um, they actually mean this advice. And uh, with your extensive medical background, you know just how ridiculous this, vice is, this advice is. So I want to uh, go kind of back and forth with you. Five areas of just outrageous medical advice that I've heard from people or medical scenarios that I've seen. And I'm like, only in the military would you hear somebody say something this, um, you know, stupid. So... Mm-hmm. You ready? Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to tell you my number five. You, you, you give me, you know, a thought or two, and okay. then we'll just go back and forth. Okay. All right. So I had a buddy. We were uh, brand new to the, the, the Army, brand new to the Ranger Regiment. We were doing some uh, IV training, and we were practicing giving each other IVs. Um, I had just given him an IV, and he took it like a champ, by the way. He could handle the pain of the needle and the catheter and everything else like that. When it was time for me to, him to give me an IV, I, I, I told him, man, you don't have to worry about it. No big deal. And I could see him starting to turn white as a sheet before he even got close. And then this buddy of mine, no exaggeration, he starts to hit my vein with the needle, and he goes completely white and passes out dead cold and hits the floor right in front of me <laughs> before he even gets the needle all the way in my arm when we finally wake him up he he lets us know that he has this aversion to blood and every time he sees blood it makes him pass out and i was like brother you may be in the wrong line of work if you're in a combat job in the ranger regiment and you don't like you you get a little nauseous or uncomfortable around the sight of blood you ever had a guy or something like that happen um, to you when you were in training uh, we had one young, one young airman that was going through the pipeline with us. Uh, I was a cross trainee and he was right out of basic. He got a little woozy and, uh, but he was like from Chicago. He'd never been around. I think, you know, for me, it's not a big problem. I grew up shooting squirrels, cleaning squirrels, uh-huh. cleaning ducks, deer. Um, <laughs> so cleaning fish. I mean, you caught a fish and dad's like, all right, get out and clean it. We're going to fry right. tonight. So yep. just by I'm numb to it. Right. So the blood doesn't freak me out, but I could see where if you are, if you're not open to that with, you know, with your past and your background, 
Like if it doesn't, <laughs> if your sensory input has never seen and worked with blood before and you go to see it, you're like, my, I'm going to die. As <laughs> soon as you see blood, I'm dying. I'm bleeding out. <laughs> that was what was so funny to me about this. Like you yeah. really signed up to become an army ranger and you get nauseous at the sight of blood. You probably chose the wrong career path. Yeah. That might be a problem, especially when you get into some direct yeah. action. Yeah. Um, Rangers and special operators, Air Force, PJs, you know, the, the rest of the, the military, U.S. military special operations community, they're notoriously tough mm -hmm. guys and gals, but they're also uh, a little bit hard-headed from mm -hmm. time to time. So number four on my list is the, I can't tell you how many times I've seen somebody have a very serious wound and then their, their team leader, their squad leader, their boss basically says, oh, just rub some dirt on it and keep on moving or, or rub some dirt on it and drive on and I'm like, you, you can't be serious right now, right? You hear the, Have you heard this one before? Yes, I, I've heard some in training, you know, in training where um, I've heard instructors say those kind of things, but they're, they actually are pararescue instructors and they can see what's going on if someone's trying to, you know, get out of, if you're trying to sandbag or something like that. But if you're in a, if you're in a combat zone, or if you're actually in a real life scenario and, and you've got an NCO or a person in leadership who, who doesn't have the medical training or to understand if someone's hurting, if your body, your pain is natural to your body yeah. to tell you, hey, something is wrong. And, and you don't want to push a person to where the injury is worse than it was when it could have been caught at that time and rehabilitated yeah. or just got some type of medical procedure or something, you know, especially when you're jumping, you're rangers, right. you're jumping all the time. You guys are done to jumping these T-10 Charlies and just busting your butts out on the you know, flight line. Tarmac jumps, uh -huh. man. If you got a guy getting up with a bad knee going, oh, my knee, just suck it up. Yep. You know, he might have a blown meniscus That's or an exactly MCL, right. PCL, yep. ACL. Yeah. You know, which brings me to number three on my list, because I can't tell you the number of times somebody's been really banged up and then their boss told them, well, just take some Motrin and drink some water and basically keep on moving. And I, I know where this is coming from, but hey, man, your advice of taking a little bit of Motrin and drinking some water is not going to keep me moving. I know you've heard that one before. Yeah, vitamin M is not necessarily yeah. always going to work. Um, it. At that point, you need proper medical assessment, uh -huh. an assessment of your medical condition. Um, you know, are you dehydrated? Is there something else going on here? Uh, so that you, I think that it can be dangerous by having that mentality and not taking into consideration what's really going on with your troops, especially if you're downrange yeah. and you don't have a sick call. You, right. So that you can assess your troops so that they don't become a casualty, a heat casualty, or some, some other type of casualty. Right. You know, be serious about your medical. If you trust your troops, you know they're not yeah. sandbagging on you. You got right. an A team around you. If someone goes, "Hey, boss, I'm hurting here," it's, it's a time. If they to, say that, then yeah. they, you know that they probably are really hurting. Right? Absolutely, not try to get out of work. Absolutely. Um, here's number two on my list. I've seen guys that are really uh, brand new and they're still trying to figure out military training and we're giving them, you know, medical scenarios and they're supposed to describe how they're going to treat it. And you know, one of the things that uh, trauma that that guys that are really untrained in trauma do is as soon as you have a pretty severe bleeding injury, they immediately want to put a tourniquet on it, right? Which is all good because mm -hmm. it will cut off the bleeding. So I heard um, this brand new guy in the army who was doing some uh, medical training and and his boss is asking him some questions and the boss says, okay, your patient has a gunshot wound to the neck and he is bleeding at the jugular. And already he's laughing right now because this guy's first response was, well, I'm just going to put a tourniquet on his neck. And anybody who knows what a tourniquet mm. does would fall on the ground laughing right now. So describe mm. the insanity of saying, I'm going to put a tourniquet on somebody's neck. That boy needs some training. <laughs> Somebody needs to take him back to the basics. Yeah. Yeah. You're just going to waste a tourniquet. I mean, the only thing you can do when it's something of that level is put pressure Apply pressure, not tourniquet pressure, because you're not trying to choke the guy. Yeah. But put one-sided pressure on it, because if they've got a jugular, I mean, unless you're going to be able to get them right there into immediate surgery, they're going to bleed out. Yeah. I mean, that's that's an, that's a given. So yeah. the guy who's thinking tourniquet on the neck was thinking bleeding, but forgot. You know, you also have to breathe through your neck too. <laughs> so that tourniquet is going to cut the breathing off. He's going to die from from lack of oxygen way before he bleeds out with your tourniquet. Look, the bottom line is don't put a tourniquet on somebody's neck. Yeah, that's some mad scientist yeah, stuff right That's there. right. That's um, and I cannot tell you, here's number one on my list. When guys started to get really good at this, when they started to do some live tissue training, which we're not going to talk about in detail here mm -hmm. because yeah. I don't want to give away anything that I shouldn't give away. Mm -hmm. um, 
I cannot tell you after they get done with some of that training, how many of my buddies who start to feel like they know what they're doing, how many of them want to dart somebody's chest. Every time that there's a major trauma incident, they're trying to figure out, is this the chance that I finally get to poke a needle in somebody's chest cavity? And I'm like, what is the obsession with putting a needle in another human being's chest? Why is this such a big deal for you? Uh, I, I can't answer that for your, your y'all's crew. Or I don't guys know what it is. Who thought that? Um, but I mean, the signs have to be there, right? Yeah. Um, and back in when I was in, you could only, you know, you could only dart two, I think it was two to three times per side. Uh-huh. And now they've got the, all these type of advanced, all the, you know, needles now that can be reused and reused. And you've got to make sure you know what you're doing. You've got to have the right placement yeah. with the hand or the chest and know where to hit. Cause you do not want to drop into the heart. And if, you know, if you have, if you definitely have a, you know, a pneumothorax or, t- you know, attention, attention pneumothorax, uh, everybody you, wants to dart the chest. Yeah. If you got something like that going on, then you're going to have to, and when you, when you do insert that needle thoracentesis into the second or third intercostal space of the chest, you're definitely going to see an immediate reaction, a bounce back from, you know, yeah. bi- so you'll have right. bilateral rise and fall the chest again. You will start to see those th- those those uh, sats, those O2 sats coming back, and so you'll know. But <laughs> you, <laughs> I, I don't, you know. I guess it is, you know, it's the cool factor. It then. looks sexy, I guess, to put yeah. a jam a needle in another human being's chest. Yeah. And what we were using was we we're just taking a 14 gauge catheter yeah, right. and just put, cutting a glove, uh-huh. finger off a glove, and putting petroleum side of it and putting the needle through that yeah. and hitting them. Now you got all these little turns. You watching uh-huh. like the movies are like, yeah. He puts it in himself, and he's going. He's like, oh, yeah. and he's good to go again. I mean, yeah, that can conceptually work that way, but totally different from, yeah. I mean, I honestly was like, I'd hate to be put in that point to where I have to do that to somebody, but I know if you see it, if you see it, if you got, if you got, you know, just one of the chest, uh, if you do not have bilateral rise and fall of the chest, if you have JVD going on, juggler distension, if uh-huh. you've got all these signs, yeah, man, you've got your O2 sats are coming down. Your, your the respirations. And so you can tell it, man. When somebody has that, you will be, it's not like, I think it is, I'm not sure. You will know. If you yeah. expose the chest and take a look at them, you'll know. In the late stages, they'll start dragging JVD. Yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty simple to see at that point. But I'm, I, I don't know, I don't, man. I don't know what the fascination was. But anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> hey, just to get serious for a second, um, I have literally did have Air Force, um, very qualified Air Force PJs around me in almost every deployment that I ever did for training or for combat. In Somalia, there was an Air Force guy right next to me. He and I were working on dudes together um, just because that guy knew exactly what he was doing. And I would rather an Air Force PJ be right next to me in Somalia than some emergency room doctors in the United States. I'm, I'm being totally serious. So thank you, man. Absolutely. And I feel the same way about the 18 Deltas yeah. and, you know, and the SEAL Corpsman. Because they're able to make decisions and not they're going to sit here and overanalyze right. it. They're going to they're going to commit. The biggest thing is not sit here and think about it too long. Well, yeah. oh, well, is this? You know, well, it could be this. Well, let's think about the acidosis and not yeah. with the pH bound. No, get the job done. Right, commit yeah. because you, every every second you're waiting, someone's dying, and that's what I love about the special operations medics and like the, yeah. and you guys and with the rangers. It's commit. Being professional, yeah. trained up to the ability to be able to make decisions make a on decision the fly. and then go with and it. And commit. And if you're wrong, you're wrong. You yeah. know what? You keep on moving. Right. All right, man. So you spent a few years in the Air Force. You did some things. In fact, you even mentioned earlier that you were in Kandahar, in Afghanistan, and you've done a few things. And you left the Air Force with more than you showed up with. I, I like to refer to it as you left the Air Force with a little bit of luggage. And you, you left with a few wounds, some banged up and, and bruised on the outside, but also on the inside. Why don't you describe a little bit about some of the struggles that you had with PTSD after leaving the U.S. Air Force? Um, well, I'll tell you, I just um, I had a record deal waiting for me right when I got out of the, uh, the, my last tour. Actually, Mike Curb had me a record deal waiting before I, before I left for my last yeah. tour. And I went down, was the NCYC um, with my commander setting up the 38th rescue unit at Kandahar. When I came back, I went right into the music business, wide open. And we had top 60s, and we're, I was on the road. I was doing 200 and 300 dates a year. Wow. And just of radio touring and playing with other artists and well-known artists across the uh, country. 
Uh, but I never was processing my emotions. I just kind of hit it and just didn't deal with it until the point came to where I started breaking down from injuries, uh, from spinal injuries, from my, my arm, my hand, just uh, knees, and some mental things I wasn't uh-huh. dealing with, with what I was a part of there and what I seen. And, and also included in it is all the people we lost, oh, all yeah. the brothers. Yeah. And still in the guilt and still being around and, and being in the industry. Look at me. I mean, what the hell, man? It just didn't make any sense. Um, so I asked out of my second record deal because I was falling apart mentally, physically, injury wise. You recognized I mean, I'm not doing well. I need mm-hmm. to, co- I need to, I need to back off. Yeah. Because I came to the industry looking at the music business the same way I did in the special operations, goal oriented, trained well, trusted everyone I was around. And it ain't that way in the music <laughs> business. In fact, basically nowhere else in the world is it like that, no. right? And it's one of the world's worst place to be is in the music industry, man. I mean, everybody's your friend when you got a hit. But if you ain't got a hit, you couldn't get arrested if you're running through Macon, Georgia uh-huh. at 2 o'clock in the afternoon naked. I mean, <laughs> it's just the concepts. Yeah. They're just not going to have anything to do with you. Um, and, and so you, there are no, you don't know who your true friends are. Uh-huh. And being military-minded, it just worked against me in that type of industry. Um, I knew I needed to take some time off. I had to get some surgeries. I also needed, wanted to use my GI bill. I had like, uh, eight weeks left, uh, to use it or yeah. I was going to lose it. Yeah. So many of my guys didn't get a chance to right. do that. Yeah. And I could not hide behind. I'm an artist with a record deal. I can't do that. No, that's, uh-uh. so I went back down to Florida, started college, Tallahassee community college. Uh-huh. And then I started and switched over to my major to Flagler with business school, for my bachelor's in business. And during that time, I had multiple surgeries, a lot of time on my back, by myself, alone, in pain, uh, multiple types of medication. Uh-huh. And this Hawaiian boy doesn't do well with medications. I mean, my manager right here will back that up. <laughs> He's uh, nodding his head right yeah, now. Yeah. We're, go- we're on the fourth different type of blood pressure pill for me to figure out what's going to work because I'm scratching up and down like <laughs> yeah. fleas or something when I take blood pressure pills. But I don't do well with meds. And the nerve blocks, the gabapentin that I was on was on a severe high dose of 2,400 milligrams a day. Uh, my discs were actually into my spinal cord, and it was uh, starting to paralyze me in some wow. different ways. And uh, my arm and hand and both knees and in the mental, the PTSD caught me when I had too much time on my back trying to recover, trying to catch up on my studies and trying to think Um, that type of pain and that darkness is what I, it hurts me really bad when I see veterans one way or another through some pathway in their life, they find it finds them or life just happens. So, um, veterans who've been in combat are going to, they have to be ex- ready to accept that there will be a time when the world crushes down on them. And when that happens, whether it be a marriage, a relationship, financials, uh, physical injuries, that that's when it's going to come back. Yeah. That's yeah. when it's going to hit you. Right. It's going to catch you at your weakest, what you did not deal with. And we weren't trained to deal with it when we came out. There was no basic training out for us right. mentally. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're saving lives. Your hands are in blood. Yeah, your buddies died. Half your team died. But thank you for your service. Hey, man, we appreciate you. I, I get it. My time's up. But there was nothing to teach me coming out of the military like things such as you know, I, I'm not going to feel better than I think, and I can't outthink my environment. Yeah. Or that the brain subconsciously doesn't know time. Right. That's why we feel what we feel when we think of emotions. And uh-huh. PTSD is a reflection of events of the past which respond strong emotions and builds a hellacious neural net in our brain, which the brain will only de- it will defend its way to think that right. way too. Yeah. So much psychology is going on here. And I you know, took a lot of psychology courses in college that started helping me understand this. But what had to happen was is I had to surrender my dysfunction. You know, I was drinking. I was d- d- taking whatever I could to turn off the pain. With the, me- the medications wasn't working. The PTSD was coming strong. It was getting worse and worse and worse. And I'm crying out to God, God, please, 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 please. Here now, here's the real battlefield. This was the real war. Yeah. Donovan, how strong are you? How are you going to stand on your ego and your training, you know, as your life to battle these problems right now? Or are you going to surrender to the highest power? Yeah. 
everything I was trained to do, everything I learned in my life, everything that I was holding on to, my identity even, I had to surrender. And so the Pararescue Foundation, I love these guys. They're my mentors. They took me in and sent me to a rehabilitation clinic. Uh-huh. Um, and I spent just a one month there. But let me tell you, that one month was the greatest month of my life right. because I surrendered. I realized this ain't going to work. Yeah. I, can, I can be a victim and keep on victimizing and victimizing. And I could point this finger at so many things. I can you and you and this and that and mm and uh and uh. Am I really winning? Right. I'm not winning nothing by doing that. When can I just not just go suck it up and move forward? Surrender. It's not about losing battle and combat. It's about losing the dysfunctional battle of your ego and self. And I surrender that. And it's something that I will have to do every day of my life. And every individual in this world, if we always realized that we have to struggle every day because we're in a dysfunctional Mm -hmm. society, a very dysfunctional world, surrender, struggle, surrender, and succeed every day. And take off your clothes at night like you're undoing yourself. Yeah. And become a new person every day without dragging yesterday into tomorrow. Yeah. It's an art, and it's a, it's a very hard thing to do. I've tried working with people on this, and, well, it's my pain. And my pain is real. I want my pain. Right. You know? And it's so sad. I have to let them fall. The biggest thing with veterans and even people, everyone's pain's real. It doesn't take combat for right. someone to be tested. Right. And God's going to give us that test. This is the test. That either you fail or you pass. Um, And when you're at that mark and you know you're at your bottom line, this is it. I am dying. I am done. I am mentally dead. I am a ghost. At that point, are you stubborn enough to want to hold on to it all the way? (laughs) Or can you go, I surrender. I want to get help. That can I get rid of that victim mentality? And people go, oh, yeah, the victim mentality. Yeah, victim. They don't understand. You just trying to break. Right. Okay, you know what? I'll be here for you. Hopefully, I can help you before you're incarcerated or before you kill yourself yeah. or if you injure or kill someone else. And I'm very lucky that during my dysfunctional times, I didn't do something stupid. Right. Uh-huh. And God's grace was upon me because I feel he had a greater thing for me to do. Yeah. And a lot of the songs on this album, Brotherhood, were written in rehab with another Marine veteran who was in Iraq who was suffering greatly. Yeah. And down there you surrender and those instructors were right there to help build you back, not break you down yeah. and get you off of all the VA meds. Hey, yeah. what do you want? Nick, tick tax what I got today. He got right. just med. Here, yeah. here we go. Be in the mail tomorrow. And so just pile on, pile on, pile on meds and meds and meds and meds. But are we really dealing with the issue with these veterans with PTSD? Yeah. Donovan, I can't tell you the number of people that I've met who st- who get stuck dealing with something that happened in the past, PTSD because of combat. And they're stuck because they've never got to the point where they realize I'm fighting this war and I'm fighting this war on my own and I'm losing it. And until I realize I need help, I need real help. You're going to keep losing this battle. So I hope that people that are struggling like you've struggled, like many others. And by the way, some of the toughest warriors that I've ever met on the planet have struggled greatly emotionally and psychologically months or years after the battle's over with. I hope they're hearing you right now. And I hope they're hearing, I need to get some help. And brother, true strength comes from Admitting that you need help. Admitting that it is not a weakness. Right. It's it's kind of a, I believe God lays this out to us, go, oh, we got to work on that ego every day. You know, that edging God out, edging God out. And so are they going to sit there and stumble in this? Or can they find that true strength, true leadership, true qualities of the highest level comes from being able to walk through your door fearway, your fearway of door and weakness and investigate it and surrender and surrender your problems because there is, we are not robots. We cannot go through this life and the dysfunction and our sensory input, our entire life from born to now is taking in information, dysfunctional and functional. And so we are a product of right. our entire lives. And boy, them combat experiences just polish us right yeah. off. Oh, yeah. And we get thrown to the wolves again. Yeah. But people, I want people to know you're not alone. Don't be afraid of, don't be afraid of fear and, and being weak. Go through that door and, right. and find out. Because through that acceptance, you'll realize 
I can get, I can, I am not a victim of myself, right. of my own life circumstances. I can overcome. And through the help of others that I trust and counselors and professional people, I can become stronger. Yeah. I throw one more thing at sure. you. I always tell people like, if you imagine a zero median line, a horizontal zero line for the people that go below zero in life and some could go, could be drug abusers, could be, I mean, anything could, you know, people who work in the streets in all different ways or whatever challenges of life, PTSD, when they do surrender, say they're negative 30, when they fully do and do the work and yeah. they continue to do the work, they go to plus, plus 30. Right. They flip the zero line. Oh, yeah. And now they are coaches. Now they are leaders. They are helping people through what they cannot accept about themselves. It's our individual responsibility and it, our discipline to work on ourselves. Yeah. Everybody that I know that's done what you just described, who's done the hard work, who's battled within themselves and got healthy emotionally and psychologically on the other side of war, they've all become great assets to guys and gals that are struggling. So yeah. if you are by yourself right now and alone, you are vulnerable. Go get a brother or sister in arms that will walk through this with you if you're struggling. Donovan, I want to wrap up with this. You just mentioned your newest album. It's called Brotherhood. Um, by the way, for people that have not or you've not heard Donovan's music, he's out there everywhere on all of the streaming services. So just go and look up Donovan Chapman. We're going to um, put some links to you and to your music at, on yeah. the notes to this. But for people that are not familiar with you, I want you to give them a taste of the title track for this album. Would you play a little bit and let them hear your song Brotherhood? Yeah. Absolutely. I'm just trying to get this mic right so you guys can hear the guitar and hear me too. Shake one, two. Can you hear me right now? Yep. Locally? Beautiful. Okay. This goes out to all the brothers out there in the special operations. We've been downrange. We all know what we're going through. Put a life on the line for another. What greater gift could you give to your brother? Repelling out of choppers as they hover behind enemy lines undercover. We all knew we might not make it back. We accepted that and we made a pact. Now I'm home alone, staying strong, making sure the honorable brothers carry on. We didn't do it for the glory. We were glad that one of us could live to tell our story. You know I misunderstood, reminiscing by my brotherhood, yeah. All the blessings I've been given. Thank God that I'm still living All the blessings you've been given Yeah, thank God that you're living All the blessings we've been given Thank God as a country we're living free Living free In Afghanistan few survived We came home with blood on her hands Kids were crying and people were dying I didn't understand there was no line in the sand My friends came home draped in a flag True heroes are in body bags They say that only the strong survive Well, hell no, that was a lie To all the families that were left behind I pray to God that you'll find some peace in your life to my brothers jumping from the sky I see on the other side All the blessings I've been given Thank God that I'm still living All the blessings you've been given Yeah, thank God that you're living and All the blessings we've been given I thank God as a country we're living free been free 
Everybody should say something and say something. Stand for something and stand for something. Say something and stand for something. Say something. Ooh, to be free is beautiful, yes. To be free. Put our life on a line for another. What greater gift could you give to your brother? Repelling out of choppers as they hover behind enemy lines. Undercover brotherhood. Wow. That was amazing, man. Hey, if you liked hearing from Donovan, if you want to hear more from him this weekend, he's going to be in the Baltimore area. They can come and see you take part in this fundraiser for Vietnam vets in the Baltimore area. Um, you can find if they want to find more information about you or about your music. Where's the best way to do that? Uh, go through the website donovanchapman.com. And where I'm also a uh, lead songwriter with the Special Operations Veterans Class on freedomsingsusa.org. And uh, we're made up. We, we, I have a Special Operations Veterans Class album that's coming out in a month as well. And that's the largest veterans writing therapy organization. And I, I run that class. And, and also I'll be at uh, Valley Fest on May 6th in Dunlap, Tennessee. All right. For a big veteran yeah. show. Wow. Well, hey, man, thank you so much for taking the time, making the trip from Nashville to be here in the studio with me. I want you to leave people with a piece of advice. You did the hard work, not just of serving in the military in some really difficult assignments, doing some dangerous stuff over com in combat, but you did the hard work of getting healthy after emotionally and psychologically healthy after returning. So what's one piece of advice you could give a guy or a gal who's doing some, who's struggling right now and they need to know some advice so that they can be unbeatable and not let circumstances uh, overwhelm them? Um, well, first of all, I'd say they've got to realize one concept that you cannot, you cannot feel better than you think and you're not going to outthink your environment. Your environment being everything, mm -hmm. not just where you live, you're around what you do your day-to-day -day, everything what you eat so you can't feel better than you think and you will not outthink your environment and that's a starting point to understand what well, what can i control and not control about right. my environment and you can measure yourself going well i need to get help i need some therapy and destigmatize de de help me destigmatize mm -hmm. recovery right everybody needs help in this whole world i mean we all do. Yeah. We all, we're not perfect. We're human beings. We're human beings. And also the fact that this is, this is the world now. You're a ranger, brother. I'm a, I'm a former PJ, former combat controller manager. This is the tough world. Yeah. Recovery is a day-to-day -day process. Right. And it doesn't matter if you're an addict or anything. You are recovering from something that's mm -hmm. bothering you in your mind. Mm -hmm. And it is a day-to-day -day process to stay on top of it. This is no longer for the weak and easy. This is a life that's no longer for the just, just slide. You're not just going to slide through this life. and No, this life takes work, day-to-day -day discipline and balance. Like I say, the three S's. Struggle, surrender, succeed every day of your life. Yeah. Great advice, man. Thank you for being willing to be here. Thanks for being in the studio. Thanks for helping guys and gals struggle, su um, submit, and then succeed. Absolutely. I pray for them all out there. I, I wish everyone the best and whatever their pathway takes them through, how, how their life leads them. I just want them to know that they're not alone with them. They're in their darkest times. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm there sometimes myself yeah. and I have to get myself out of it every Absolutely. day. Absolutely. Yes. I'm only human too. All right. Hey, you just heard some great advice. It takes real strength to surrender to submit and realize I can't do this one on my own. And if I'm going to succeed, I need to reach out to somebody else for help. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of Unbeatable. 
If you're connecting with us for the first time, here's what I'd like for you to do. Would you go ahead and follow us on social media? Or even better, would you rate us on your favorite podcast platform? Let everybody know what you think about this podcast. By the way, you can find us pretty much everywhere on social media. Just search for at Unbeatable Podcast. And I've helped a lot of people, warriors and others, struggle through difficulties. I created a little survival guide, literally the Unbeatable Army Survival Guide, and I will give it to you totally free. All you need to do to get this free download is to go to unbeatablearmy.com. Now, I want to go out on a high note. I want you to end this broadcast today listening to Donovan Chapman play his hit song, Brotherhood, from his brand new album. Take it away, Donovan. This goes out to all the brothers out there in the special operations. We've been downrange. Y'all know what we're going through. Put a life on the line for another. What greater gift could you give to your brother? Repelling out of choppers as they hover behind enemy lines on the cover. We all knew we might not make it back. We accepted that and we made a pack. Now I'm home alone, staying strong, making sure the honorable brothers carry on. We didn't do it for the glory. We were glad that one of us could live to tell our story. You know I misunderstood, reminiscing about my brotherhood.